All right, if you have your Bible, which, I mean, come on, you should, uh, take out your Bible and turn in it to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we have some Bibles in the back if you need some. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we are studying uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the king that has invaded um, Matthew chapter 1, he's the rightful king, he is the son of Abraham, he's the son of David, and also he's the son of God, born by the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 2, there was a clash of kingdoms, an earthly king, Herod, came, tried to take him out, but sovereign God uh, led through dreams and through prophecy and all these things, and um, that earthly king, Herod, could not take out the heavenly king, Jesus. And Matthew chapter 3, there's this preparation for this king, and the kingdom's message is, what was the message? Repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this crazy guy that was really hairy and smelly and ate locusts, that was his message, that was his call, and then Jesus shows up on the scene uh, 30 years later, and or about that approximately, and uh, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Was it a new message? No, it was all throughout the Old Testament. Repent, return, come back, uh, come back, come back. Though you our sins are as scarlet, I will make you white as snow if you return. What, I've, what I have broken, I will restore, um, Hosea says. All throughout the minor prophets... A loving yet holy and righteous God is calling to his adulterous, immoral, adultery-filled people saying, come back. All of the Old Testament is, we need a Savior. And then the King, Savior, King Jesus invades. Matthew chapter 4, right after the Holy Spirit comes upon him, after God says, this is my beloved Son, he's led to the wilderness and we have another clash of kingdoms. The enemy the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon, the serpent of old who started this whole deceptive thing, did God really say, tries to pull the same mess on Jesus, and Jesus punch jugular, takes him out, mixed martial arts, takes the word of God and just whips up on the enemy, takes him out. All of it is an identity thing. Are you really the Son of God? Are you really the Son of God? Do this. Are you really the Son of God? Do this. And what does Jesus use in order to combat to mixed martial arts take down into submission the enemy? The Word of God. Awesome. Very cool. Then we get to the end of chapter 4, and Jesus is doing all this crazy, crazy stuff. He's healing epileptic people. He's taken out some demons. The kingdom of heaven, when it comes to earth, does some pretty crazy things. Look at Matthew chapter 4 with me, the very end. Uh, wait for it. Let's go to verse 23. Jesus was going about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now remember, this is to the Jews. Healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. The news, obviously, about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds were following Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We talked a little bit about this last week, how there were two types of people that were following Jesus. Those people that were just looking for the show, 
wow, he healed a man. Did you hear about the guy that healed a man? Yeah, that guy who was demoniac running around naked. Yeah, he healed him. Um, That's what brought them to Jesus. And then there were those men and women who were serious about this might be the Savior, King, Messiah, promised one. So two types of people. Then we get to chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Crowds most likely followed him. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, what's he say? First, what we call beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are, what's the next one? The meek. Why are they blessed? For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive Mercy. This sounds good so far. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they'll be called the sons of God. Blessed are those, this is where it gets a little shady, who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now in verse 10, who are we dealing with? The blessed who are, what's going on in their life? Persecuted for what? Righteousness, and what do they get? What's their award? The kingdom of God. Go back to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sounds like the same thing. Jesus introduces this countercultural message to Jews who are looking for the militant takeover of the Roman domination. They are looking for a king to come in, set up usurp the authority of the Romans, take out the Romans, set up his kingdom, and for them, the sons of Abraham, the sons of David, to finally experience all of those promises that God gave them in the Old Testament. That's what they're waiting for. And Jesus, when he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, what's the first thing that he says? Blessed are the militant, rebellious ones who take over. For theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the poor. Poor in what? He defines it for us. Poor in what? Poor in spirit. Now, this is pretty interesting. Blessed comes from the Latin word... Beatus. That's weird. You don't need to write that down. Who cares about Latin? In the Greek, it's a word, merikarios. M-A-R-K-A-R-I-O-S. Typically, it means happiness. Happy are the poor in spirit. So Jesus introduces this whole Matthew 5, 6, and 7 sermon that's about not just outward righteousness, but true righteousness that comes from the heart. 
he introduces it by saying, happy are the poor in spirit. What's that called? A paradox? A just opposites? There we go, oxymoron. Happy are the miserable. Happy are the miserable. Now, typically this word means happiness, but in our, in our vernacular, that's, that's bad news for us. Because usually happiness is dependent upon our circumstances, right? If it's beautiful fall weather outside and you go and check onto Facebook, what do you usually see? Wow, it's beautiful outside. All my troubles are gone away. Oh, pumpkin spice latte. I'm so happy. Right? That was a couple of them this week. What else? The Rangers won. I'm so happy. The Cowboys, not happy. Trinity won. Happy. Right? What are other things that make us happy? Food. I'm Italian. Food makes me happy. What else makes you all happy? Chocolate. Yeah. People without chocolate are very irritable. Right? Do you need some chocolate? Okay, good. You have a smile on your face, so you must have had some. What else makes us happy? Guys, what makes us happy? Good grades. Nice. That's very studious of you, Caleb. Good job. Toys. I'm believing a lie right now that if I had a motorcycle that I would be happy. My wife laughs at me. Huh? You think it's true? I would not be happy because therefore my wife would not be happy and Dave Ramsey would not be happy because we wouldn't be paying for cash for it and then my life would be not happy. That's a really long equation right there. Motorcycle not equal to happiness. What else? What? If you have a good day at work, you're happy. What do most people our age live for? Well, yeah, money, whatever. But why do we want money? To buy stuff and the weekend. Oh, I can't wait till Friday. I'll be so happy. Right? Everybody's living and working for the weekend. Well, this is not what we're talking about here with happiness. Happiness, not in circumstances. It's far more than that. It is so much more than that. Really, blessed means blessed is the person who has God's approval. Happy, um, satisfied, uh, fulfilled is the person with God's approval. And so Jesus goes through this litany of things. Blessed is blank. Why? Because blank is the way he sets it up. The list goes through those that have God's approval and what they have in return. It's an inclusive list. Not everybody on planet earth is included in this list of Matthew 5, 3 and following. There are people that are left out of this list. Now consider the setting with me. Jesus is speaking to disciples and large crowds. 
who are waiting for the king to come to set up his kingdom. And they're thinking he's going to take it over by force. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are you. Those who are approved by God are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom. Look at some of the other things that it says in this blessed is blank because they are blank. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? What are they going to get? They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek or gentle for they'll inherit the kingdom of, or the inherit the earth, not the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that hunger, that crave righteousness. Those that crave righteousness, hunger and thirst after righteousness, what will they get? They'll be satisfied. They are craving this approval from God and they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God. Blessed are the persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, don't separate yourself from the context of what we've looked at over the past two weeks. Jesus is talking about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what repentance looks like. This is what the kingdom of heaven that invades earth through the hearts of men, this is what it looks like when it's lived out now. Not when Jesus comes back in the future, but when King Jesus intersects my life, invades my life, takes control of my life now. Very cool. Those who are approved by God. We'll put it this way. A person whose character has been changed. Think of all the things in the Sermon on the Mount. We get through chapter 5. You heard it said, outward, external, don't murder. But I tell you, don't hate. Attitude of the heart. You've heard it said, don't lust. Outward. Don't commit adultery, sorry. Outward. You, I say to you, don't even have lust in your heart. He who has lust in his heart has already committed adultery. So there's this battle between external righteousness for the sake of righteousness, self-righteousness, where I'm in control, painting the pretty picture on the outside, and true heart, invaded by the king, changed heart, covenant, new, new heart, righteousness that is lived out from the heart. In chapter 6, Jesus gets into the beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. But unless your righteousness surpasses that, of the scribes and Pharisees, external righteousness. Unless your righteousness surpasses that, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So all of this is about the kingdom. All of this is about true righteousness. All of this is about the heart. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites, external righteousness do it for the reward in secret of your Father who's in heaven. 
Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Then you get to Matthew chapter 7, and it's don't judge, but then we have all these judgment things going on. There are two roads. There are two trees. And there are two houses in Matthew chapter 7. Two roads. Narrow is the road that leads to life, true righteousness. Few find it. Broad, huge, wide, interstate 35 is the way that leads to destruction. And many find it. Beware of false prophets. What do they look like? Well, bad tree. They have bad fruit. The bad fruit on the tree shows bad root system, bad heart. But have good fruit. Good fruit. Where does it come from? Good roots, good heart, good fruit. Then finally, Jesus sums up this whole message that begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He sums it all up by saying a story. We all like stories. Those who hear these words and act on them. Jesus' message always calls for action. Those who hear these words and act on them can be compared to the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Those who hear these words and don't act on them. What does Jesus call these people? Fools who build their house, they still go through the process of building, but they build it on the foundation that's made of sand. For both the wise man and the foolish man, the storms, the heat of life comes, and it shows where their foundation is. The man who's built their house upon the rock, wise man, acts upon the word of God, saved. Those who build their house on the foundation that is made of sand, destroyed. Who can save it? very end, Matthew chapter 7, all of these people are hearing these words and they're astonished. They're astonished at Jesus because he has authority and power in his speaking, not like their scribes and Pharisees that practice their righteousness for men instead of God. Well, that's the scheme of what we're dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. Where does the entrance to the kingdom of heaven begin. Blessed, approved by God, are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Give me some of your all's ideas and then I'll give you um, the right idea. (laughs) Yes, that was very arrogant. Yeah. Uh, the way I put it, uh, recognizing that we need Recognizing that you need something beyond yourself. Anybody else? Okay, could be persecuted. Say again, why? Because your spirit then is downtrodden. Okay, all right. Anybody else? Say again. Weary, weak. Okay. 
There are several Greek words in the New Testament that mean poor. This particular word has an imagery with it where the individual is within a huge pit. A huge pit. And they may have even tried to claw their way out of this pit. I remember when I was in high school, I liked this band called the Smashing Pumpkins. And they had this, um, they had this video that just freaked me out. But it was awesome. It was so cool. Despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. Do you all remember that video? Some of you are like, I'm 20. <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins. It was this really creepy video where all of these people were in this huge pit. Huge pit. They are just covered from head to foot. Their, their, their heads are shaved. They, um, they just have like shorts on that are nasty. And they're covered in mud. And they're just clawing their way out of this pit. They don't care who is in their way. They're going to get in this pit. But what the, the message of the song is, despite all my rage... Despite me trying to get out of this pit, I am still just a rat in a cage going around on this little treadmill, not getting anywhere. The imagery of being poor in spirit is, I am so destitute. I am reaching my hand up. My head is down. I have realized there is no possible way for me to get out of this pit. It even goes a step further where my knees are buckled from under me and I'm on the ground, pit over me, and I'm reaching my hand up to something besides myself saying, I cannot do this. There is no way, no way that I can get out. You stop clawing your way out of the pit and you realize in and of Yourself, you are damned. Poor in spirit. Approved by God. Blessed are the approved. Those who are approved by God are poor in spirit, on their knees, in a pit, reaching up, can't even look up to see who is going to get them out. They are so destitute, so downtrodden, so heavy with sin that they can't do it. And they're reaching for something else. They're not clawing anymore. They've given up except for this one last ditch effort. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So unworthy, so low, poor, abject in your poverty, as abject as you can be. It's an attitude, we've seen Matthew 5, 6, and 7, everything is about the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. I have nothing. There is no merit within me that can bring me entrance into the kingdom of God. There is no thing, no piece of paper that I've signed, no aisle that I've walked, 
No being dunked in the baptismal that can bring me. No church membership. No church affiliation. No memorizing in Awana, all these things. There is nothing. There is nothing in me that is of any value. Now we live in a day and age where that is not a good message. We live in a day and age where you can do it. Why do you think American Idol is so successful? Because you have this guy on there that is saying, you suck. And somebody should have told you that in your 20 years of life when you were singing in the shower, singing in the mirror, or singing in the play, that you stink. But you've gotten on TV and embarrassed yourself. And so you know what? I'm going to tell you. You can't sing. That was the worst thing I've ever heard. That is why American Idol is so successful. You're horrible. Do your parents love you? If they loved you, they would have told you, sweetie, you're beautiful, God loves you, but you cannot sing worth a flying flip. Maybe you can crochet, I don't know, but not sing. But instead, my wife Becky and I only watched the first three weeks of American Idol. Why? Because... You have all these people. There was one guy, and um, I'll get in trouble for this, but it's okay. There's one guy who's been on several episodes. He calls himself Mr. Sex. Do you remember him? No, some people do. Yeah, he is the, he's made in the image of God, but he is the most odd person that you've ever seen. And Mr. Sex brought with him his mom as well. Super odd. Very odd. I think he's been on four episodes. Guy cannot sing. And then he tries to up the ante by dancing. Can't dance. What? Oh, I can't even go into it. I'll lose all train of thought. We do not live in a a day and age where the message of you are completely worthless is acceptable. Someone telling us that is not acceptable. But even worse, us feeling destitute and worthless is not something that we are accustomed to. Now those of you that are questioning your mind, but wait. You tell something by how much something is worth, by how much you pay for it. And wait a second, all the analytical thinkers are thinking in their mind, but Christ paid for the worthless. That's what makes salvation that much more. Oh my God. Because you're worthless. Because you're in a pit. Because you have hewned out cisterns for yourself that hold no water like Jeremiah says. You've gone from one pit. Maybe it's um, just approval. You are an approval. I will get approval. I will get approval. I will feel like a man. I will feel like a man. I will show my mom and dad, even though they said those things. And despite all your rage, you're still just a rat. You go from one hole to the next, and it's time to put the shovel down in your mess, in the soiled mess of your life, and reach up your hand and say, I'm done. I can't do it. 
there is nothing good in me. Well, this attitude towards God is seen throughout the Old Testament in some responses to it as well. So I want to show you a couple of these. And again, it's, God, there's nothing about me to commend myself to you. God, there's nothing of value or worth in me that would make you want me. Nothing. Not the stuff I do, not the stuff I say, not the Christian activity that I'm involved in. There is nothing that I do that should get the favor, mercy, help, deliverance, pulling me out. There's nothing. It's an attitude of the heart. If we could see the posture of your heart, what would it look like? Would it look like you were a rat in a cage? Would it look like you were one of those ones scurrying out of the pit on your own merit, your own tries? Or would it look like you saying, I need a Savior. I need a Deliverer. God sees, God sees the status of our heart. When we cry out to God on our knees, soiled and hands raised, head down, God sees it. And that's the one to whom he looks. That's the son or daughter that he looks to. Beauty pageants cannot earn you into the kingdom of heaven. Where people like you on the outside. But on the inside you are broken. Military competitions where you can storm the gates will not bring you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Promotions at work where you take out everybody else at all costs. That's not like the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. That's what grants you entrance. When the king is invaded, the kingdom that's advancing, it's a countercultural kingdom. The only way that you can be a part is to have an initial and ongoing sense of your poverty in spirit. Turn to Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah for a little bit. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of those big fat prophets. It's sometimes called the Romans of the, New or the Old Testament, because there is so much about Jesus in this book of destruction that's coming upon Israel. Go to Isaiah 57. And Isaiah 57 is about Israel's stupidity with idols. I mean, absolute stupidity. And adultery. And their sexual immorality with these idols. Even in the midst of that, verse 14 of Isaiah 57, this is what God says. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. I mean, they're in the midst of idolatry, whoring around on God. And this is what God says, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever or who dwells in eternity, 
whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart. Even in the Old Testament it's about the heart of the contrite. I will not contend, I will not fight against them forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of those whom I have made. What does verse 15 tell us about God? What's the first part say about God right here? God who... What? He is high and exalted. There is no one like him. Earlier in Isaiah it says, Who is like me that you will liken him to me? I am the Lord. I will not give my praise to idols nor to anything that I have made. Who is like me? Though he is high and lofty and lifted up and exalted, what does the second part say? He, what? Though he is high and exalted, he dwells with whom? The lowly, the contrite, those of a humble spirit. He will revive them. Go a little bit later in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66. Same deal. where he's calling them out and he says, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven, again, high and exalted, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my ottoman, my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Where is a place that I can rest? My hands have made all of these things. Thus Not only have I made all these things, all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But though I'm high, though I'm exalted, though I'm lifted up, to this one will I look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit. Him who trembles at my word. To whom will God look, according to these two passages? Yeah, the person who has it all together. The Jew who maintains the standard of outward righteousness. Is that who he looks to? The person who's grown up in the church their whole lives and knows all of Scripture and yet is the most prideful person that you've ever met. Who will God look at and aid and come to the assistance of? the lowly, the contrite, the broken-hearted, and those who tremble at his word. Man. This does not tell us how to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
There's no reference of Jesus being the one who has paid my debt and gives me a righteousness that is not of my own. This is merely the attitude of the one who enters the kingdom of heaven. This is blessed or approved by God are the poor in spirit. Though he's high and exalted and lifted up, he will look to the poor in spirit and say, that's the one who's my son, that's the one who's my daughter, because they're lowly, they're poor in spirit, and they tremble at my word. Dusty already took us to this place, but let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6. told you we'd be in Isaiah for a little bit. One of my favorite books of the Bible. Isaiah 6. You've probably heard this a million times. In the midst of this idolatry, in the midst of a nation who hates God, in the midst of indifference and apathy and going through the external motions of worship without the true attitude of the heart. Actually, go over to chapter 1. Let me show this to you. This is the setting. This is the reality of what is taking place. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, or verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings, rams, all your external stuff. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? You're making a mockery of me. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure the iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate, because love, I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I'm not going to listen. Your hands are covered in blood. And listen to this call that he gives them to repentance. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. This is the opportunity for repentance. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But just like the kingdom that had the clash that divided when Jesus came, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Dead religion mixed with paganism where we mix parts of God with parts of the worship of the world and we try to mix them together and we come up with our own religion. Dead religion, paganism equals God being burdened and weighed down with sin. That's the setting in which Isaiah is called in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, all the seraphim, and he's taken up to this place and it's pretty crazy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling, verse 4, smoke. I mean, pretty intense scene. Verse 5, then I said, he sees, not, not God personally, he sees 
like the smoke and all this stuff. And look at what he says. Look at his response. What's he say? Verse 5. Woe is me. I'm ruined. Some translations say, I am a dead man. He's in the presence of God and says, woe is me. I'm a dead man. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. Not only am I a man of unclean lips, but I live among a people of unclean lips. He knew he was unclean. He didn't have to have a 12-step program to point it out. He didn't have someone saying, you can have your best life now. He met God, saw God, and boom, on the knees, probably face down on the floor, I'm going to die. I better not even move or flinch because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Why does he say that? Well, look, keep going. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people with unclean lips, verse 5. For my eyes have seen the king. To be poor in spirit is to see a glimpse of God for who he really is. Not God, the giver of good gifts. Not God, the genie who you rub him the right way and he gives you what you want. Not God who, I'm going to give you a blessing. That's a part, partial picture of God. God who is holy. God who should not even give you the breath that you just took because of sin. Isaiah knew he was unclean. He's among a people of unclean lips, yet he came in contact with a holy God. We're going to get more into this whole poor in spirit thing in a second. But I want to ask you a question of how, how does this apply to us? Have you ever been in the place where you have had this moment? Where the pit is there, you in some form or fashion, see God for who He really is. Not your friend. Not your Father in the sky, but holy, righteous, just God. Have you ever had that moment where in the attitude of your heart you've responded of, I have nothing to bring you. I am destitute. I am worthless. I am without hope in the world. Or, are you like so many that are our age that have tried to plea bargain with God? What if we had that encounter where we could look into your heart right now and see what was going on in your heart? God, remember that time when I blank? Oh, yeah, I'm a believer. Remember, I went to blah, 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 and I did blah, 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 and therefore, I'm a believer. Oh, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that. And yet, that phrase, that moment, has not impacted your life at all. There's no, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
I need someone else to come and be my righteousness. That's what happened with Isaiah. If you continue in chapter 6, something from the throne had to come and touch him and clean him, make him holy so that he could then go tell other people, the people of unclean lips that he lived among, that they were unholy. People who keep listening, but they don't get it. They keep looking, verse 9, but they don't understand. Their hearts of this people are insensitive. Their ears are dull. Their eyes are dim. Otherwise, they might see. They might hear. They might understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Isaiah says, Lord, how long? And God says, until all the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. The land's desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places. Yet there's still hope at the end. There's a stump. Though I'm going to cut the tree down and burn it, there's a stump that remains. The holy seed. The remnant. Have you ever had that moment where you reach up and you say, nothing. I bring nothing to the table. You've encountered God through His Word and you have that I am nothing moment. We need to remember two things when it comes to being poor in spirit. The first of which is poverty of spirit is evidence of genuine repentance. Remember, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does repentance look like? What does righteousness look like? It looks like, repentance looks like poor in spirit. God, you are right. I am blank. Not only am I blank, but even on my best day where I love my neighbor, where I love others, it is worthless. It is abominable in your sight. I have nothing. It's an evidence of genuine repentance. And we've had this definition that's been swirling around about repentance where repentance is I wake up. I get it. I'm I'm in sin, God. I wake up, I own up to it. Not just, oh, I'm a sinner, but I looked at pornography or I slept with my girlfriend this night. I am awakened to the reality that that is not God's will, that that is going to take me out, that that is unrighteousness, that that is an abomination to God. I own up to it. God, your word in 1 Thessalonians 4 says that your will is for my sanctification, that I abstain from sexual immorality. And that's what I've done. I have devalued, defamed your word. I have gone to something else for satisfaction, for significance, and it reveals this heart issue within me that I'm not satisfied with you. I am not finding my identity in Jesus. I wake up to that reality. I own up to specific sin, specific repentance. And then I come into contact with a holy God and say, but you, O Lord, have given me your righteousness in Christ. You've given me the spirit of God. You've given me a faith family, a gospel change community to help me change. And I shift the weight of my sin to the cross find my identity in Jesus and I 
take another step forward through the grace and the power of Jesus. You've heard it said repentance is a change of mind. I didn't think that was wrong. Now I think it's wrong because God's word says a change of heart where God reaches in, changes the heart, and then a change of direction with my life. If there's never the full scope of repentance, then it's not repentance. If you just have a change of mind that masturbation is wrong, but you never change the way you live your life, then that's not genuine repentance. If you believe that sleeping with your girlfriend is okay, or saving on some rent to live together before you get married is okay, and hoeing around and acting like nobody else is going to know that you're hoeing around, though you have the same address. If you're doing that while naming the name of Jesus, and you never own up to it, and you never turn away from it and get out of that as a man saying, I will fight for integrity and character within my home, and we will establish our home as a godly home before we ever even enter marriage. Even if the wife, even if the girlfriend says, but you say, woman, we are going to honor God. As Hebrews 13 says, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. We are going to do that through the power of the cross and through the gospel. Peace out. I'll call you later. We're not going to hoe around tonight. That's what obedience, that's what repentance is. The full shift. It can only happen through the cross of Jesus Christ. Number one, poverty of spirit is evidence of genuine repentance. It is maintained through continual dependence upon God. I have nothing. I came with nothing. Therefore, the only thing that I have is what Jesus gives me. It's not as if when I become a believer that, boom, now, okay, I I entered the kingdom of heaven through nothing of my own. It is he who called. I responded. Nothing of my own. Now that I'm in the kingdom of heaven, yeah, thanks, Jesus. I got it from here. Colossians says, as you've received Christ, so walk in him. It was by faith you received him. It's by faith that you walk in him. Jesus modeled this for us. Jesus' Savior, you got to get him as Savior first. But then he also modeled this for us in a life that is fully dependent upon God. He says multiple times throughout John, if you have a problem with the scope of salvation of, did you do salvation or did God do salvation or who's involved in that, study the book of John. All throughout John, it's no one that the Father has given me will be cast out. Everyone who the Father has given me are mine, and I have them. Jesus also says that what I see the Father doing, I do. I do nothing that I don't see the Father doing. Jesus lived in continual dependence upon the Father. John 5, 19 says, The Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something that He sees the Father doing. Whatever he sees the Father doing, the Son does in a like manner. What's that mean with poor in spirit? It means you have nothing. If you are a believer in this room tonight, perspective, look back over your life. You had nothing, you have nothing, and you will have nothing that Jesus did not give to you, that God did not give to you in Jesus Christ through the cross. If you're not a believer in this room, you have nothing. You need Jesus. You need a Savior. 
Isaiah or Psalms 40. Do you know Psalm 40? It's a pretty cool U2 song too. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. You know that one? I was in a pit. He set, took me out of the pit, set my feet upon a rock. You know that one? It's all throughout Scripture, you guys. Let me give you another model of it. Uh, turn to uh, Luke chapter 5. That's in the New Testament. Jesus is talking to some folks. We get this picture of what it means in our lives today to be poor in spirit. Matthew 5, go to verse 5. Jesus is um, calling the first disciples and he's chilling with Simon Peter. And you get to verse 5, Simon's master, we worked hard all night. We haven't caught any fish. We're expert fishermen. We got ousted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those guys. And here we have no fish. That's my interpretation of it. I'm adding some stuff to it. Verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed... They, they listened to what Jesus said. Hey, move the nets from there to there. Um, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to the partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. Had nothing, now they have everything. And they came and filled both of the boats. So the boats began to sink. That's a whole lot of fish. But when Simon Peter saw this, poor in spirit, he falls down at the feet of Jesus, saying... Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man, O Lord. Through the obedience, through seeing what's going on, Jesus, with Jesus, Peter recognizes his sin of unbelief. Amazement had seized him. He was amazed at Jesus. It seized his heart and all of his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. That's where Jesus says that famous thing. You'll be ca- you were catching fish, but you'll be catching men. Paul dealt with this too. Turn to Romans 7. Those of you who misinterpret Romans 7, it's annoying because you view the first part of Romans 7 where Paul says, uh, the things I do, I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Um, if you're into languages at all, go back and look at the verb tenses of every verb in chapter 7. And it's an active present tense where Paul is actively at that right time doing the things he does not want to do. And then you have this clash at the end of 24, this realization where Paul is talking about what life was like, where there was this war going on inside of him, where he wanted to be righteous through the law. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Jew among Jews, but he could not find the righteousness in the law. And so he says, wretched man that I am, who will future tense, set me free from this body of death. Pause, 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 answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin, there is there. For now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, 
make me righteous, God did by sending his own son. Paul got the poor in spirit. What about life after, after salvation? Go to Romans 12. Romans 12. This is all about spiritual gifts. Uh, Romans 1 through about verse 3 is, uh, or chapter 3 is, um, the, Jews, the pagans are unrighteous and without excuse. The Jews, religious people, are without excuse. Chapter 3, everyone is without excuse. There is none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 4 and 5, he begins to deal this thing with, hey, there's this thing called faith. Abraham had it. David had it. Let's go back to it. Chapter 6 is faith is in Jesus, the, ju- the justifier. And chapter 6, 7, and 8 is all about life in the present moment of sanctification where Jesus is transforming you. Those who are in Adam, still in sin. Those who are in Jesus, being renewed, fighting a new battle, fighting a new war. Seven, eight, nine, or no, sorry, nine, 10, and 11 is all about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And then you got to chapter 12, these people that are living in a new community with one another. I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, verse one and two, you know that, but go to verse six. Not only were you poor in spirit, you had nothing when you came to the table. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise these gifts accordingly, if prophecy according to the propitiation of his faith. 1 Corinthians 12 says kind of the same thing. Even after you come to Jesus, things to serve that you're given, they are given to you. You have nothing at salvation, And then after salvation, you bring nothing to the table that God has not given you. The gifts, it was given to you. The ability to do the gifts was given to you. The energy to do the gifts was given you. The result of the gifts in ministry is given to you. Go back to Romans 12 if you're gone, verse 3. For though the grace, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Life, God is saying, life is from me. Ministry is from me. The gifts to fulfill the ministry is from me. The effects of the ministry are from me. The energy for the ministry is from me. By the works of the law, no man shall be justified. There's none righteous, no, not one. We all like sheep have gone astray. This is what? Initial and continual poverty of spirit looks like. Our way is wrong. There is nothing that you bring to the table that commends you before God. God, I cannot do it. I need a savior. God, you're holy. You're just when dealing with sinners. You're merciful and then I'm not already dead for my sin. I need rescue. And then look at how Paul closes this in Romans 11, right before what we just read. He's talking about the sovereignty of God, man's responsibility, salvation all throughout. And look at what he says. Notice the poverty in spirit. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. What comes with poverty of spirit? The minute you see your poverty of spirit, go back to Matthew 5, 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right with God of God is holy, I am not. The next thing they do, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, what's the next thing? Mourn, for they shall be comforted. When I have an accurate view of my absolute poverty before God, the only response for me is to mourn over my sin. Let me close with Psalm 51. You're familiar with it when David realized his abject poverty before God. Against thee, Psalm 51 verse 4, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Continues on, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. You cannot contrive a righteousness on your own. You must come, if you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, the doorway to the kingdom of heaven is Jesus, where you realize you must see God as holy. You must respond in an attitude of your heart by being poor in spirit. And if you've been saved or redeemed or delivered for 10, 15, 20 years, you're still maintaining this attitude of, I have nothing before you, God. The energy, the gifts, the ministry, the effects of ministry you've given me, they all come from Jesus. Father, we are lost without you. I know there are many in this room tonight who are working their own righteousness. They have regarded others' sin, but they have never really realized how destitute, how without hope they are. Father, would you, as the king, would you speak to them? Would you, through the Holy Spirit, woo them? Would you, through your kindness, your sovereign, loving loyalty, lead them to places where they stop believing a lie that something else will satisfy them besides Jesus. Where something else will bring them identity besides Jesus. Where something else will fulfill them besides Jesus. May they see Jesus not as fulfillment only, but as holy. May they put the shovel down, though they're stained, though they smell, though they're soiled in their own effort. May they put it down. May they quit clawing. May they put it down. May they get on their knees. They reach up their hand and bow their head and say, I need a Savior. I need deliverance. 
And God, we believe in faith in your word that that's the one to whom you will look in an effort to help and redeem and deliver. That is the one whose heart is marked to be a son of God, a daughter of the King. Father, for those that are in the room tonight who have had that point but they've in their lives where they've realized this, but they've forgotten that they have nothing. Lord, they've been trying to do this thing called Christianity in their own strength. Lord, like a flood. It tears down pride and arrogance like trees that are swallowed in a flood. I ask that you would release the dam of your love and your holiness in their life where you devastate them and where they once again can be marked as the ones who tremble at your word that you would love us. That though our sins are scarlet, though we have nothing, though we were at rest children of wrath, you through Jesus have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your Son. Jesus, you are awesome.